Father's Day, and Father's Day, I've, I've come to find out, is a day in which there are more than 100 million cards given and received, which is probably not surprising, but there's another factoid that comes along with that, that um, there 80 million pounds of beef are consumed today. 80 million pounds of beef are consumed today. That just kind of makes you want to go take a nap, doesn't it? That's a lot. That's a lot of cows. But um, we're going to take a, sort of a meaty look, if you want to think of it that way, at a portion of Scripture today devoted exclusively to fathers. But it is, um, it's relevant to all of us, not just those who are fathers, but to mothers and to any of us who are believers, because the principles that are specifically applied to fathers, many of them also apply to us. And I love that Jim read from the Psalms of Ascent, uh, because uh, we're going to head back there once again to uh, Psalm 127. I know we started a series on Abraham last week, and I've, uh, I thought, well, we could plow on through that, or we could just uh, take a little break from it and uh, look at fathers for, uh, for a week. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break from Abraham, Father Abraham, and come back to him next week. But today we're going to look at Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, right there side by side. As we've said many times with the Psalms of Ascents, the Psalms of Ascents, of course, were sung a number of times throughout the years as the pilgrims would ascend to Jerusalem for the feasts. And as a result of them being sung several times a year, these basic themes would be repeated. And it was the males who were actually required to go to uh, Jerusalem or the place of worship three times a year. The family was optional because not all the time the family could travel, but the males were required to go. And so it's interesting that we have two songs that are specifically geared to fathers in this uh this repertoire of the Psalms of Ascent. And if you notice in Psalm 127, it says there at the top, a song of ascents of Solomon. Of Solomon. This is the only psalm that we have that Solomon wrote. And so you can sort of see his flair in it. We'll also notice as we, uh, as we look at the first couple of verses. But let's Let's work our way through these, uh, these wonderful psalms because they have some great principles for us of encouragement to, uh, to live a godly life. Psalm 127, look at verse 1. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Uh, notice in the, these verses the word vain. It is vain. They labor in vain, or the watchman keeps awake in vain. Remember Solomon wrote this, and Solomon also wrote Ecclesiastes. And you know the, the theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity. And it's the same word. He's basically saying that it's meaningless. It's vain. It's vanity. 
to, in the book of Ecclesiastes, to live a life apart from God, that uh, the life we live apart from God is meaningless. There is no meaning in life if God is not in the picture. And it's that exact same principle that he is applying here in these first couple of verses. Solomon says that, yes, builders build a house, but if the Lord is not the one building the house, if he is not the sovereign Lord of the lives of the builders or of the owners of the home, then you're laboring in vain to build it. Unless the Lord is the one ultimately guarding the city, the watchman can stay awake all night long, and it's not going to keep the city any safer. But So the point Solomon is saying is, by setting the stage for family, is saying, just like building a house, God's got to be the ultimate one we trust in. Just like guarding a city, God has got to be the ultimate one we trust in. The same is true of family. Uh, many years ago, when I was uh, just started out in the pastorate, this was back in the early 90s, there was a, a, a lady that came to, to us at the church and wanted to get married. And she and her fiancé wanted to get married. And I said, well, that's great. We uh, actually require, though, that you go through six weeks of premarital counseling just to get you set, set and ready and uh, make sure that we can iron out some wrinkles to give you the best, uh, the best marriage possible. And she said, well, we're not going to be able to do that. We're not going to be able to do the, the premarriage counseling because we want to get married in a month. And I said, well, that's great, but, you know, you're going to have to have somebody else do it then because uh, I won't marry you if you don't go through the premarital counseling. And she was a little miffed at that. And she says, well, you know, okay, I'll talk to my fiance. And she goes and talks to him. And uh, I didn't hear back for, you know, a long time. And finally, I ran into her again, and she had not gotten married. And I asked her what happened. And she said, well, I told my fiance about your requirement for pre premarital counseling. And he said, well, he refused to do that. And she said, I didn't like that he refused to do that. Come to find out, I didn't like him. And so they didn't get married. <laughs> and um, anyway, she, um, she thanked me, actually. She said, thank you for requiring that, because uh, I, I discovered some truth about him that otherwise I wouldn't have known. You see, it's important that the Lord is the one that is building the foundation, that he is the one that is the, the undergirding of the whole family, just like the building a house, just like guarding a city. A family is not just relationships that somehow get along. Family is rooted in our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, Solomon is saying in verse 1, he's saying that uh, our efforts alone are futile. And he carries this principle uh, into the priorities now of the Father. Look at verse 2. This theme of vanity continues. Solomon says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Notice the details of this verse. Again, you've got that, the theme of vanity. What, why is it vain or why is it meaningless to rise up early, to retire late? In other words, you get up early to, to go in early. You stay up late 
thinking that this is the key to your provision. And Solomon describes it here, eating the bread of painful labor. It's vain to do that. Why is it vain to do that? Because the second part of the verse tells us that God gives to us even in our sleep. Even when we're sleeping, God is providing for us. So once again, we're, we're trusting in the Lord's ultimate provision. It's not that, that we get up early or that we stay up late. Not that those exceptions obviously aren't sometimes we have to do, to do those things. But if we're doing those things thinking that it is those things that provide for us, then it's vain. It's like a, a watchman trying to watch the city without ultimately trusting in the Lord. God provides for us even when we're sleeping. That's such a beautiful picture. So if provision is not to be our, our uh, all-consuming priority, Notice the shift in focus now in verse 3. What is a father to give priority to? Verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. What a beautiful picture. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Here you have the, uh, the command, you know, the very first command in the Bible to humanity is be fruitful and multiply. This is a, a, a command that's given to us. But the principle goes beyond simple physical reproduction. Obviously, that was the context of Genesis. But the, con the principle of reproducing after our kind is not just something that plants do. It's not just something that humans do in a physical sense but it's also something we do in a spiritual sense. Because even after we have had our kids and we are done reproducing in the sense of uh, having children, we are still reproducing in the sense of having spiritual children. When the, uh, the Lord Jesus gave the command to make disciples, he was giving a command to multiply, to fill the earth, and subdue it in the sense of to make disciples of all the nations. It's a beautiful picture because it, it reminds us that even after we're done having children, we're not done multiplying. We still have the spiritual life to multiply in the lives of other people. You know, the Apostle Paul used that principle when he said that he, he referred to Timothy. He said, Timothy, is you're my true child in a common faith. He wrote, when he wrote to Philemon, he spoke of Onesimus and said that Onesimus is my child begotten in my imprisonment. So the children that we have in life are not just our physical descendants, but they are also our spiritual descendants. So include that thinking in this, this principle of reproduction or in the principle of being a father or even a mother of reproducing your life in the life of someone else. It's not just physical. Anybody, this, this may sound crass, but anybody can have sex. It takes a special person to, have a, to be a father, to be a mother, to be a daddy, to be a mommy, to reproduce that relationship in the life of somebody else. Uh, that's the principle that, that goes throughout this, uh, this psalm.
And notice the word, behold. In other words, hey, pay attention. Children are a gift. Children are a reward. Do you consider your kids a gift? I know sometimes they, uh, they're the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> in the sense that they just they continue to be um, a burden in the sense of responsibility. But they're a gift to us. I read about a, uh, a political figure back in the 19th century named Charles Francis Adams. I don't know if you have heard of him or remember Charles Francis Adams. Political, uh, political diplomat, he kept a diary. And one day in his diary, he wrote this simple entry. He said, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. And his son, whose name was Brooke Adams, also kept the journal. And that day also was recorded in his journal. In fact, Brooke Adams' journal still exists. And uh, his entry for that day had a totally different perspective. Went fishing with my father, it said, the most wonderful day of my life. You know, the best way to tell the difference between wasting time and investing time is the ultimate priority that is, that is given to it. Kids or children or people spell love, not L-O-V-E, but T-I-M-E. That what we give our time to is what we are truly saying is a priority. And I think we've all experienced this. I don't know if it was true of you as a child, but it was definitely true of me as a child that uh, we can be distracted with gifts. It's easy to give our kids stuff or our grandkids. It's easy to give them stuff. It's harder to give them us, isn't it? But the gifts and the money that we give are going to end up, in some sense, in the landfill. But the time that we give, the love that we give, is priceless. And it is something that is an investment that will... Uh, that they will keep with us with them for the rest of their lives. I think sometimes the deception that we can fall into, uh, and I'm still in the provider mode. I know that some of you are not, that you're in re retirement and providing is something that you're truly trusting in the Lord 100% for right now. But um, some of us are, are still in the mode of actually going out and earning the, the wage and saving for those days of retirement. And I think one of, the, one of the deceptive things is that the most important thing we do in life is the thing that takes most of our time, and that's working. And there are some significant things, obviously, that, uh, that we do with work, but it is people, it, it is family, it is our children, and it is our spiritual children who are really the priority. That's why we're here. We earn a living so that we can live. We don't live to earn a living. We want to make sure that one is supporting the other and not vice versa. I would rather fail as a professional than to fail as a father. I would rather fail as a professional than to fail as a father. And I've seen it, and you've probably seen it as well, that that. When people give uh, a lopsided priority to work as opposed to to uh, to family and to relationships, that it it ends up being uh, a deception. 
a deceptive priority. So they need time. Kids, our spiritual children and grandchildren need time, but they also need training. Look at the next verse, verse 4. What a beautiful metaphor this is. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I like this verse because the father is likened to a warrior, a warrior with arrows in his hand, and the children are the arrows. The children of one's youth are like arrows. And it's a, it's a nice metaphor, and if you, if you think about some of the details or the implications of it, how are children like arrows? Well, I can think of a couple of ways. You could uh, come up with probably quite a few more here, but here are a couple of obvious ways that children are like arrows. First of all, they go where they're pointed. They go where they're pointed. Uh, an arrow is incapable of pointing itself. It, it is incapable of launching itself. It has. They have to be launched. They have to be fashioned, and they have to be launched. You know, today, if we want an arrow, we, uh, we pull up Amazon or someplace or go down to the, the hardware, I mean, the sports store, and we'll just buy a set of arrows ready-made. But in the old days, in the days when Solomon wrote this, they didn't have Amazon. They actually made the arrows. And so think of that metaphor of an arrow as not just something that a warrior grabs and shoots, but it is something that a warrior has fashioned and, and, and designed for a particular purpose. So children are that way. Grandchildren are that way. Our spiritual children are that way. They go where they're pointed. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul commanded fathers and said, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's Ephesians 6. Deuteronomy 6 says the similar thing when it talks about teaching your children as you walk by the way, as you lie down when you get up. There is this sense of it being uh, in the fabric of life, that it's not just in the sense of like what we're doing now where we have a formal time of instruction, but then the rest of life, you know, you live like hell. You are, in, you are in, in including the spiritual life in all of the life that you have. It, it, when you're walking by the way, you're talking about Christ. When you're driving down the road, you're praying. And when you come upon an accident, that the spiritual life is just ingrained in who you are, and it spills over into the life of our kids. I like what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, you continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So arrows, or children, go where they're pointed. And secondly, an arrow is useless in the quiver. It's useless if we leave it in the quiver. Or to say it another way, an arrow is useless unless we let it go. And this is tough. This is tough. We have spent 
you know, years and years fashioning our kids. And we will release them very often with a string attached. And if we don't like where it's landed, we'll jerk it back and try it again. And this is such a challenge, both for us as well as for our kids and grandkids, because we need to release them. We have done our part in training them, and then we need to release them and now let God have his way in their lives. It's tough to let our kids go. We want to keep parenting them and, and uh, telling them what to do for years and years to come, even after they've left the nest. But we need to, we need to let them go. We need to let the Lord uh, be the one that leads their lives. And to be there, to be their, um, their friend, true, but to be the counselor that also leads by modeling and not simply by, uh, by giving instruction. Well, let's look at the next psalm because it continues right in the same path or the same way of thinking. And it isn't written by Solomon, but it is, uh, it's a wonderful follow-up psalm to Psalm 127. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 128. It says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. We have, we're not told yet, uh, if you look at verse 3, it says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. So we know that this is talking to the husband or to the father. And so when we, when we read verse 1 and 2, we understand that this uh, writer is saying that you are blessed when you fear the Lord. That it's getting right down to the, to the essence of who you are as a man or who you are as a person. You are a God-fearer. You are one who has a personal relationship with God. And we're told that if you have that relationship with God, if you walk in his ways, you will eat the fruit of your hands or the fruit of your labor. The, uh, the connection there is interesting but for the, to go back up to uh, uh, Psalm 127, verse 2, when it talks about eating the bread of painful labors, and then you have, in Psalm 128, verse 2, you eat the, the fruit, or literally the labor, of your hands. It's, it's a beautiful contrast. You've got one that is a painful labor, and you've got one that is a labor of joy. And it's rooted in the fact that you have a relationship, an abiding walk with God. And we're told, you'll be happy that happiness or joy in our lives comes from our spiritual life. There is a direct relationship between the quality of your spiritual life and the quality of your entire life. I have discovered this through the years, and I've seen it true in the lives of many other people, that, that where we are spiritually is where we are. And if there is anxiety that, that is overwhelming our lives, if there's fear, if, there's, if there are challenges that are deep set in worry and panic, then it is a reflection also of our spiritual life. Not that if you have a walk with God, everything's going to go well. That's not what the psalm is teaching. It's talking about a deep abiding joy that's rooted in your walk with God, regardless of the circumstances. The, um, 
if we say, if we want to continue these, these psalms, kind of look at them as a unit, our children, our grandchildren, our spiritual children need our time, they need our training, and this shows us that they need our example. Part of the example is being, uh, is showing people how to mess up, showing our kids how to mess up. Not that we need to show them, maybe I should say another way, what to do when you mess up. <laughs> Not how to mess up. They could teach you how to do that. But, but how, do you, uh, how do you mess up in a godly way? Well, let me ask you this. When's the last time you apologized to someone in your family? That's tough. You know, it's, it's easy to apologize to the, the person you bump into at the grocery store or even the person that you, uh, that you bump in the car in front of you to get out and apologize. But to apologize to your wife, to your husband, to your children or grandchildren, uh, that's hard because that, that rakes away all of the pride in our heart, doesn't it? If you can apologize to family, you can truly apologize. Family needs our example. Children need our example. Not only a good example, but also a good example of how to mess up. Because they're going to mess up. And if we show them that the way that you respond to a failure or a, 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 to a mess up is to try to cover yourself, then uh, that's what they're going to do. But if they see humility... And if they see the example of, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry, then that's what they're going to carry into their life as well. Well, looking at the, uh, the next verse, we see that the life of the father or the life of the individual spills over into the, into the life of the rest of the family. Look at verse 3. We read, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. I remember years ago, Kathy was at the grocery store. She told me that she was at the grocery store and she noticed as she was checking out uh, in, in the line, a man in front of her was buying flowers. And Kathy commented on how beautiful the bouquet was. And the man said, oh yeah, I've got the, I've got to buy these flowers about once a month because I'm so hard to live with. And Kathy told me that, and I thought, you know, I wonder if that guy really thinks that the flowers are the solution. <laughs> it, takes, it takes the spiritual life of the individual spills over into the spiritual life of everybody else in the home, doesn't it? You notice that? that the quality of your relationship with, with the Lord spills over and influences the quality of those whom you live with. It's true. The picture of one sitting under a vine, this, uh, this metaphor that's given here, is an expression of peace. It's an expression of tranquility. The spiritual life of the father affects the wife and the children. The children are described here like olive plants. Literally, the Hebrew says they are transplanted shoots. A shoot is a young plant that hasn't borne any fruit yet. And it describes kids well because, in other words, they're small versions of us. When a father fears the Lord, 
it spills over into the life of his family. His wife is like a fruitful and secure person. Uh, his kids are little sprouts that one day are going to bear fruit, just like the tree that they've been transplanted into. And the example of our walk with God is not just short-term. It is long-term. Look at the last couple of verses. It says, The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. You see, the quality of our lives is not just for us. It's not just for our own happiness. It's not just to make our wives happy or our children happy or our husbands or grandchildren. But it spills over into multiple generations. The, uh, the blessing of requesting God's grace upon your children's children, on your grandchildren. Your grandchildren are affected by your spiritual life. I, uh, I've noticed that uh, in the life of Jesus, of course, he, Jesus was never married. Jesus didn't have children, but he did have plenty of spiritual children. And when you look at his example, it is a marvelous example, not only of leadership, but of, uh, in the sense, if you want to think of Jesus, not just as our brother, but as our leader, in the sense that we, we love him, we follow him, like we would a father or a grandfather. Think about Jesus' example. If you think about it, Jesus didn't need anybody. He could have done ministry all by himself, and he could have done it perfectly. And, but he chose to include people. He chose to include these uh, 12 disciples that we often just sort of shake our heads and wonder what they were thinking. But Jesus was shaping their lives. He was tolerating their imperfections because he, he knows that he was creating something in them far more than the moment. He was creating in them individuals who would ultimately go out and spread the good news throughout the whole world. If we are to be effective in whatever area God's put us, whether it's the workplace, whether it's the home, whether it's the, with our grandkids or with, it, with our neighbors, uh, or in our church as leaders, in whatever capacity God's put us, we need to see Jesus as our ultimate example. If you think about it, Christ never sat on the couch and barked out orders from behind the television. Christ never cloistered himself in his office and only led by sending emails. He never claimed that the ministry was his ministry and that the others should just click their heels and and follow along behind. Now, his leadership included relationship, like these Psalms teach us. His leadership included relationship. Listen to this verse. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Mark 3.14. Mark 3.14 says, He appointed 12 disciples so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Notice the order that they would be with him. There was relationship before responsibility given. They would, they would be with him before they would serve him. He invested time in these men. And from that relationship, he communicated love. He communicated vision, correction, rebuke. And even the rebuke came in the context of relationship. 
I remember hearing Josh McDowell one time. I was, uh, I think it was in Fort Worth. He was speaking, and I heard him say this wonderful principle for parents. He said, "Rules without relationship equals rebellion. Rules without relationship equal rebellion." You've probably seen that even as you were growing up or in the context of your own mistakes as parents or in the lives of other people, that parents or grandparents who don't take the time to have a good relationship and a nurturing relationship with kids, uh, when you just bark out rules, the first opportunity they have to rebel, they rebel. Jesus didn't do that with his disciples. He was with them. And he loved them and led them in a context of relationship. Jesus saw his disciples, his little children, his servants, as the product. And we can make that practical in a few ways when we think about Christ. First of all, our children and our grandchildren are the goal. They They are the goal rather than the means of accomplishing our personal fulfillment. They are the goal, that we're pouring our lives into them. Uh, In the workplace, you could think of your best product as not whatever it is you produce, but your best product are the employees that are there. Volunteers at church in in the same way. Uh, the, The goal of ministry is people. It's not using people to do the ministry. The ministry is people. The ministry is relationship. Jesus trained the the 12 in the context of relationship, and then he entrusted them to do it. More and more, he he put it in their hands and included them in the process. Remember, he used the disciples in the feeding of the 5,000. He brought Peter, James, and John off along with him when there was a private miracle to be performed. Even when Jesus was struggling in Gethsemane, he brought Peter, James, and John in close. Jesus didn't need them. But he wanted to include them because relationships for Christ were the goal. They weren't simply to be used to accomplish whatever goal there was. Jesus Jesus showed us that if we love them, then they will give their lives for us. That's what the disciples did for Christ, and that's uh, that's what we're to do in the lives of others. So, now, none of this is perfect. You, as a parent, as a grandparent, as an employer, any kind of leader, uh, you have had influence over people, and I have as well, and none of us have done it perfectly. But here's the wonderful thing about God's grace. It's never too late to go and to try to start. If you, as a parent, blew it, it's not too late. I mean, Father's Day is a great day to make a phone call and to say, you know what? I wasn't the best dad I could have been, but I want you to know I love you, and uh, maybe in some way we can start again right now. I know that that's not ideal, but you know, it's sure better than nothing. It's sure better than doing nothing. I love that the grace of God could maybe even have prepared our children for the moment where we can Uh, reach out to them, and begin expressing love and begin being that example that these psalms talk about. I'm trying to remember who the sports writer was. There's a a sports writer. um, He always had the last page of Sports Illustrated. 
and uh, O'Reilly, that was his name, O'Reilly. Uh, but anyway, he, he, was, he gave a talk to a bunch of uh, college athletes that were about to go pro. And it was basically just, you know, one-liner advice to them. Most of it was a little sarcastic and sort of poked at them. But one of the things that he said, I've never forgotten. He said, so you didn't have a father? Great. Go be one. I thought, wow, that's great advice. You know, we can lick our wounds that maybe we didn't have the childhood that we should have had or that... Um, we can use that as an excuse to maybe we're not the fathers or the mothers or grandparents that we should be. All of that gets pushed aside when we look at these two Psalms. They don't talk about our, our upbringing and the sense of what we deserved. They talk about our personal responsibility right now. And we can begin to be that godly person that the Psalms want us to be, that the Lord urges us to be and that our family can begin benefiting from uh, the godly life that we can contribute to them. And I know that today is Father's Day, and fathers are kind of the ones uh, who are held up and honored. But um, I hope that all throughout the year, uh, wives and children and others are encouraging dads. Dads have it tough in this day. Uh, especially when the very essence of, of true biblical manhood is being assaulted. These two psalms that we've looked at are not something that we're going to have applauded in the workplace, in the media, or in the movies. It's only applauded in the scriptures and in churches that teach the scriptures, and it can also be applauded by families that see a man doing the best he can to follow Christ and to support that man to encourage him, and to forgive him when he blows it, because we need it. (laughs) We need that forgiveness and the encouragement to continue to follow Christ. So encourage that dad today um, to, to follow Christ, and if he's following Christ, encourage him that you so appreciate it. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful to you for these two psalms that take us back to the very basics of a father's responsibility. We know that principle goes larger than dad's, but we just want to focus for a moment on our fathers. All of us had fathers who were not perfect, and our children have fathers who are not perfect. Our grandchildren have grandfathers who are not perfect. Father, you give us this perfect model being our Father. You give us this perfect model in the Lord Jesus Christ, who led with relationships as the goal, who never barked out orders unless it was also in a context of love, safety, and security. Thank you for this wonderful model that Christ gives us that we can implement in our families today. And we pray in his name. Amen.